I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanera, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I can walk into Barnes and Nobles or hop onto Amazon and find volumes upon volumes of books that will take me an entire lifetime of continuous reading to learn how to raise a teenager with good social, emotional, and mental health. Short of learning how to defuse a nuclear bomb, there's pretty much a guidebook to everything that you need to know about raising a child. All these books are well-intentioned and many times even highly recommended reading. But to me, they point to the fundamental challenge that many parents like myself face. There is no single answer to cure this existential crisis. With my 13-year-old daughter, the fun is only just beginning. It normally starts off in the morning. I go through the normal routine of turning her alarm clock off because it's been going for 10 minutes. I shake her awake. I pace back and forth for another 10 minutes, hoping that she wakes up by herself. And then when she finally does wake up, I have to check to make sure that she has everything, her homework, her backpack, her house keys. I could go on. Why is it that the brain becomes a total mush during the teenage years? In every generation, it seems the same lament goes forth from the parents of adolescents. What is the matter with kids today? Why are they so brainless, confused, annoying, moody, reckless, defiant? Or maybe the question I should really be asking myself is, have I forgotten how to relate to being a kid? My guest today is Dr. James Hutchek, and he may be able to provide some insights into what is happening in the minds of our teenagers. Dr. Hutchek is a child and adolescent psychiatrist who was named to U.S. News and World Report's top doctors list in 2012 and 13. Dr. Hutchek placed in the top 1% of excellence in child and adolescent psychiatry with special expertise in ADD, HTHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and psychopharmacology. And he's also a professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Vermont College of Medicine, the director of the Vermont Center for Children, Youth, and Families, and the director of the Wellness Environment at the University of Vermont. Dr. Hutchek, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Thank you for having me, Tino. So with all these titles, uh, I'm not sure what to call you. Jim would work best for me, Tino. Jim? All right, we'll go with yeah. Jim then. Jim, many kids I know uh, grow up wanting to be a scientist, a policeman, a fireman, or a doctor. What did you want to be when you grew up? Um, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a professional athlete, like a lot of young boys growing up in Illinois wasn't until I got to uh, college where I realized I wasn't talented enough even to be a good college athlete that uh, my thoughts uh, moved to other ideas. 
So what were some of the, the childhood influences that led you into medicine? Well, as a child, uh, I really didn't have much uh, desire to go into medicine. I just had a desire to uh, survive uh, the early years of my life. Uh, great mother and great siblings, but uh, not a lot of other resources. Um, but was able to go to a, a really wonderful preparatory school where I principally went to play sports, but was uh, benefited by great teachers. And while while at uh, St. Pete Academy in Illinois, I met some great science teachers, and I became very, very curious about science, engaged in science fair projects and science fairs. Had some really wonderful student uh, colleagues, uh, Mike Stewart, who's now a physician at Mayo, and I did science projects together. So I've always fell in love with the curiosity of understanding uh, the science of uh, human development and the science of why humans behave the way they behaved. It wasn't until I got to college and uh, quite honestly was muddling around as a student uh, that I met uh, uh, a woman named Teresa who is now my my partner of 42 years and my wife of 33 and she turned out to be a great student among other things a scientist herself and in order for me to keep her company I had to learn how to study <laughs> and I, I learned that from her and she was a daughter of two physicians and in fact two psychiatrists and her father, uh, Vicente Bautista Twasson, um, who recently passed away, um, was a great, great uh, psychiatrist and, and my mentor and hero. And so I decided uh, shortly after meeting him that I kind of wanted to be like him. So I switched from uh, wanting to be an athlete to wanting to be a doctor and more specifically wanting to be a doctor uh, who did research uh, in uh, human behavior. Was there anything in particular that made you focus on the human behavior side? Not that I could uh, pass to any other reason except that uh, my teachers, uh, and particularly my relationship with uh, Dr. Twasson, he exposed me to uh, the beauty of brain development. And I fell in love with the brain in medical school. I participated in research projects uh, studying the brain, studying the post-mortem brain, I remember this was before we had things like uh, MRIs or CAT scans. So the study of neurology, the study of uh, basic neuroscience was uh, quite different 35 years ago than even today. But I even knew then that I wanted to understand the brain and how the brain worked, uh, sort of at that time a, a frontier. Because people would typically re refer to the brain and its uh, structure and function as a black box. And uh, it was the right decision because uh, Right now, neuroscience and, and the study of the structure and function of the human brain is uh, you know, the single most interesting thing going on in modern medicine, at least from my, my point of view. Yeah, so we've heard all about uh, what it takes to get into medical school, you know, the years of study and residency and all of that. And also, you know, I'm dating you here, but uh, all of this is pre-internet and pre-modern technology. Um, can you give us a sneak peek into the mythical world of med medical school and, uh, you know, what it took to go through all of that? Well, first of all, go going to medical school and, and particularly going to medical school in this modern era, 
is one of the great joys and great privileges that a that a human can engage in. I mean, the the ability to meet a child, a patient, a patient and his or her family where they are in the midst of some kind of struggle is is a great honor. And uh, although it's hard work uh, to study the knowledge, skills, and attitudes you would need to be a competent and, and hopefully outstanding physician, the carrot is the ability to practice uh, medicine, and in my case, practice medicine and do research and teach in a career that's unlike any other. Um, at the University of Vermont, the Vermont Integrated Curriculum, very, very proud of the young people who enter our medical school. We acknowledge how hard they work, and we celebrate uh, just how terrific they are uh, at the other end when they graduate and begin their residency training. In fact, we're getting ready for graduation here at the University of Vermont. We'll, we'll graduate the students who finish four years, and many, if not most of them, all of them will go on to do a residency training, which adds an additional minimum of three years, all the way up to five or six years of training based on the discipline that you'll go into. Uh, in my own career, I went to medical school and then I did a residency at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and then fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry, neuroimaging, and genetics. I, I simply never wanted to stop going to school. And on a very personal level, my, my eldest child will be graduating from the University of Vermont uh, next week. Her name is Vicenta, named after the man I talked to you about a bit earlier. That's fantastic. And, uh, she is uh, going to do her residency in uh, the pediatric uh, and pediatric psychiatry triple board program at Brown Hospital, if you would allow me the, the joy of saying she's sort of going into the same profession that her grandfather did and her papa did. Uh, <laughs> so it's a great honor. Yeah, you sound like a proud dad. That's fantastic. Congratulations to, to you and to her as well. Thank you so much. So how did you end up at the University of Vermont? Again, I would go anywhere my wife, uh, Teresa, wanted to go. And I trained at Washington University, which a lot of people on the East Coast don't realize this, but in my opinion, it's the greatest medical center in the United States. And uh, when I was done with my training, they trained me to be an independent, creative person. And uh, I wanted to build my own program started to look around the country, and my wife fell in love with Vermont, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, I would go anywhere she would go, and so we came here, and we built the Vermont Center for Children, Youth, and Families, and it's a tremendous decision, and, and it's been nothing but a joy. It's a real honor to be at the University of Vermont, and a real honor to be at the Lerner College of Medicine here. Well, we're honored to have you guys uh, here. So, with all the titles and roles that you, you have, what exactly do you do uh, primarily at the University of Vermont? Well, when, when I came here, my goal and the goal of all of my research science is uh, understanding how the environment impacts on a child's development and, a, and a, a child's ability to reach his or her their full potential. My science is, is really quite simple. It sounds somewhat complicated, but my field and the science that I work on argues that your environment influences your genome through something called epi or post-genetic modification by turning on and turning off genes that affect the structure and function of the brain. And if the structure and function of your brain changes, it can impact your thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors. 
and my argument in the books I've edited, the papers I've written, is that all health is the end result of your emotional behavioral health, why you exercise or not, drink or not, are kind to yourself, your partner and your children or not, or the counterlateral argument, if you're abusive or not, if you abuse drugs or not. They all come from the human brain and the human brain's ability to exist in an environment. So I've spent uh, 25 years uh, doing research in my labs uh, with my colleagues in the Netherlands where we've been following 80,000 twins since they were born and able to understand when genes matter, when the environment matters. Another study, I'm a professor at Erasmus University in uh, Rotterdam at Sophia Children's Hospital as a guest professor there. We study 10,000 kids we've been following since 12 weeks in utero using genetics, epigenetics, neuroimaging, and the measurement of environmental influences to understand why some kids struggle and others don't. Led me at Vermont to create something called the Vermont Family-Based Approach, which is using my genetics and neuroimaging research, argued that the best way to help a child is to help improve his or her environment. The best way to help improve a child's environment is through helping mom and dad be well. And first, improving the health of the child through health promotion ideas. Uh, music helps a child's brain develop in the regulatory region. Uh, sports and exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, yoga, nutrition. And so in our center, we help mom and dad achieve their greatest strength. We engage in parent training. And then for the kids, we engage in health promotion. In fact, we like to say we can help you build a healthy brain. The whole goal is to diminish the need for medications or pharmacology in little kids and instead help kids and help families learn how to help their kids develop healthy brains. That's interesting because, you know, at least in my, the way that I usually think about this, most kids are being medicated as routinely as I am seeing kids getting braces, you know, and yet your approach sounds distinctly non-medical, if I may use that word freely um is that uh, i would i, I would uh, i would push back on you calling my work non-medical for the following way i do understand why you would say it tino but um the characterization of what many people do when a child's inattentive or a child is anxious or, or sad uh certainly i'd have to acknowledge that pharmacology is often where many doctors go but all of the things we use in my clinic have been shown through neuroimaging research, longitudinal research, public health research, to change the health outcomes of children. In fact, the book I edited is called uh, Genetic and Environmental Influences on Developmental Psychopathology and Wellness. You teeter the totter. So most people believe if bad things happen to a child, bad outcomes can follow. And certainly science supports that premise. But the opposite is then also true. If good things would happen to children, good outcomes could follow. So in the papers we've published on the effects of music training, uh, removing uh, the neural signature of poverty, the great papers by Nina Krauss, our own papers that show a dose effect of the more music you practice, the more benefits you have in the cortical organization of the ventral medial and prefrontal cortical regions, the regions of the brain for emotional regulation. One of my own papers showing that violin 
training, music training impacts in the area of the brain where kids with ADHD have delayed development, raising the tantalizing possibility that in the future, uh, the new prescriptions that people like yourself, Tino, would consider medical will be, in fact, music, meditation, daily exercise, nutrition. So if you came to our clinic, you would see kids sitting yoga, kids sitting meditation, moms and dads uh, sitting meditations with their kids or doing family-based yoga, or uh, we have large groups of kids taking violin lessons and music lessons, and we're dealing with food insecurity. Those are all the things that are happening in our clinic with our family wellness coaches. If mom or dad are anxious, sad, or nervous, or drug uh, affected, they will see one of our family-focused coaches to help them overcome their own emotional behavioral vulnerabilities in the service of their kids' wellness. And we do parent training on how to help you understand why your 13-year-old is a beautiful, beautiful human being just undergoing through a difficult period of brain development. That's our clinic here. We're quite proud of it. It's all medical. It's just not prescriptions of medicines. It's prescriptions of wellness. But I would admit we're unique. Uh, we've created this science here, and uh, we're trying to disseminate it around the country and around the world, and, and, and we are. So it's, it's a new way to look at the world. That's fascinating uh, because, in other words, what you're saying is biology is not destiny. So the brain doesn't affect behavior in so much as also behavior also affects the brain. So social, cultural influences, experiences, etc. cetera. Uh, in other words, it's a two-way street. There's no question. It's, it's iterative. Um, papers I've written call a, a gene-by-environment interaction, uh, but also gene-by-environment by genetic modification. So the basic message is we can all change. Um, we just need to incentivize change away from negative uh, behaviors that can lead to negative health outcomes towards positive behaviors that can lead to positive health outcomes. The point of my work is that the focus of all that should be the brain or everything above the neck and the body will follow. So we say in our program here, we build healthy, healthy brains, then healthy bodies. And a lot of what's happened in our country is focusing from the neck down and ignoring that all of the vulnerabilities that lead us to struggle from a general medical point of view, obesity, diabetes, asthma, hypertension, most of the cardiovascular diseases are the result of decisions made by the brain to not be well. And the other part that we've pushed very hard is that it's time for us to admit that all of us are a bit sad and anxious, uh, quirky, inattentive, and naughty, and it's but for the grace of God, the environments we've been raised in and the genes we have that we're either protected from or put at risk for the extremes of these illnesses that are then associated with negative outcomes like alcohol and drug abuse, psychiatric illness, obesity, diabetes, and asthma. So an important movement for modern medicine in our country, but also in, in the world, is for us to admit that all of us have emotional behavioral problems, psychiatric symptoms, and that all of us could use our energies to engage in health-promoting behaviors to minimize the negative attributes that can get us in trouble and to emphasize our strengths. Got it. So we're living in probably the most intensely stimulating period in the history of the Earth. 
we're besieged with information from every platform imaginable, phones, computers, TVs, billboards, even our cars. Um, what is the effect of this, especially on our children's brains? The first thing that all of us have to understand is that uh, very, very few people have taken advantage of the understanding of brain development in the human being. And we now know the brain is not a black box. We can tell you about the structure and function of the human brain at different developmental periods in young people's lives. And it can lead to you understanding their behaviors in a brain behavior point of view in a very empathic, uh, clarity-based uh, point of view. For instance, at the University of Vermont, we're one of the centers participating in the largest grant ever funded by the National Institute of Health called ABCD, or Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development. Hugh Garavan and Lexi Potter at our place are the PIs on this study, which will follow 10,000 10-year-old children for the next 10 years of their lives using neuroimaging, genetics, and behavioral measures to understand at a deeper dive why some children struggle and others don't in order to develop new ways, new, new approaches to help young kids to develop healthy brains. So one of the interesting things that you bring up in your question is if you understand brain development and you have an anthropologic viewpoint on what humans are, is we have to admit, even though we're very proud of what we think a human is, we really haven't evolved that much since we became homo sapiens. And nowhere is that more true than in the human brain. And so when you look at a kid, it probably is really helpful for you to understand, as my friend and colleague Adam Gasly at UCSF uh, has written in a, in a beautiful book, um, that our kids have ancient brains and they're living in a modern world. And you would modify it to our kids have ancient brains and maybe living in the most modern, most stimulating, most overtaxing world. And this causes me to have great empathy and compassion for teenagers. Because if you understand that brain that a 14-year-old has or a 13-year-old have when originally designed, was designed for an organism that probably was only going to live 20 years, and its primary existence, like all species, was the procreation and sustain and and to sustain the species. So this early brain development towards risk behavior, fight or flight, uh, pleasure and sex was necessary for humanity to continue. That same brain does not do very well in this modern world, and yet humans aren't as evolved as they think you know, they imagine they might be. So if you could understand that the sort of subcortical limbic areas of the brain, and I'll make that less comp scientific in a second, that these things are highly developed and sort of done by the time a kid is 13, 14, and 15 years old. This is the reasons of the brain that most people have heard about now called the amygdala, which is the center of the, it's on every CSI episode and every suspense <laughs> novel written. I actually know this that one. <laughs> yeah, this is fight or flight. This is fear. This is, I hate myself. I'm fat. I'm stupid. I'm ugly. Emotional dysregulation, anger, uh, overreactivity. And then it's uh, near neighbor, the nucleus accumbens, which I, in my teaching, like to call the James Brown area of the brain or the dopamine area of the brain. This lights up <laughs> with all kinds of pleasure, but alcohol, drugs, uh, cocaine, um, marijuana, etc. 
So this very primitive area of the brain, if you looked at it in terms of human evolution, it drove us towards sustaining our species. But now in an era where we highly value the higher cortical structures, including the frontal areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the ventral medial orbital frontal cortex, this is the area of the brain where attention, concentration, executive processing, and emotional regulation lives and doesn't fully cortically develop until 23, 24, 25 years old in women, and I like to joke uh, 55, 60 years old in men. <laughs> but particularly in the teenager, one of the nice ways to think about them, and Jay Keed wrote a beautiful article on this in Science Magazine some years ago, but a great way to think about teenagers is that they're like a house under construction. Most of your listeners will have seen a house being built in their neighborhood or somewhere in town, and, and six months before completion, it looks quite awful. Half the roof is on, wires are flopping around, there's construction equipment in the front yard, none of the walls are in, plumbing's in, and it, you know, it, looks, it looks awful. And then you drive by three, four, five months later, and you see a beautiful, beautiful home. Well, you couldn't have a beautiful home unless you went through the construction period. Mm. And what a teenager's brain is going through is going through this construction period. You can't avoid it. You have to go through this architectural refinement. And my goal and the work that I'm doing, my team is doing, is to say, let's use health promotion strategies so that as the teenager becomes an adult, he, she, or they are finishing off their home with the most beautiful finished work they can so as they enter the independence of full adulthood, they've got a beautiful house rather than one that was put together poorly. Another analogy then is why you're building that house and the brain developing from the back forward is you have all of the energy engine and horsepower of a race car, but you don't have brakes. This prefrontal region is the part of the brain that says, you know, that's not such a great idea. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should quiet our brain a little bit. Piaget called this brain period the logic of all possibilities. You'll never be as in love as you are when you're 15, 16, 17, but you'll also never be as sad as you are when you're 15, 16, 17. And my argument is, first of all, our teenagers should know that, but even more importantly, their parents should know that. But then we should give them a toolkit to negotiate this final construction of their brain to help the final product become a beautiful brain rather than one that's been negatively affected by things like cannabis, alcohol, drugs, neglect, abuse, and violence. So I've got a, this is really intriguing for me, by the way. And at least from what I had thought in my head was that the period of greatest brain development was, you know, coming out of the womb until about maybe three or four years old. But what you're saying is that, you know, the 13 to 24, 25-year-old brain development might just be as important, if not more important, in shaping the future development of individuals and how they impact the society. Yeah, well, I mean, they're both important. And, you know, I think the symphony of human brain development, at least for me, just like it was when I was a young person, remains the most fascinating thing in my world. But uh, the, the 
process that you're talking about is in the inner uterine period, you know, we're generating neurons, we're building a bunch of neurons, are called neurogenesis, so we're stacking neurons on top of neurons on top of neurons. So the brain, you know, goes from, you know, the size of a seed to a penny to a quarter to a dollar uh, to the time of birth, you know, smaller than the full adult brain, but certainly you've built a big big brain. So that's called neurogenesis. And then those neurons start talking to each other. That's called synaptogenesis. That's one neuron talks to another neuron, talks to another neuron so that you can see color or you can taste food or you can smell. And then those important pathways get wrapped in a myelin sheath like insulation. That's called myelination. And then neurons that we don't need or don't use or because of our, the environment effects on our brain, uh, we get rid of them. That's called programmed cell death or apoptosis. A nice way I like to think about it is called pruning or pruning your like bonsai tree to finish your brain so that you end up with the proper number of neurons, hopefully with the right networks that talk to each other well and make you happy. So the period from zero to three or fertilization from three is about building all those neurons, stacking them up. And a nice way to think about it, you don't have that many synapses when you're born. And you know from your own kids, they lay on their back, they make water bubbles, they can't see color, they can't do much. And that's a nice way for a parent to understand that the brain is just not yet developed. It's not, in my joking, it's not that interesting. But what we have to do is provide it with this enriching environment so more neurons talk, talk to each other and more synapses change. You think to your daughter when she was nine months old, she's standing up, she's making up new words, she's just talking up a storm. That's because almost all the neurons are talking to each other because they haven't been wrapped fully in these uh, sort of developed <laughs> neural networks. By the time your kid was two or three, she has more synapses, more neurons talking to more neurons than she will have when she's a full-grown adult. And in fact, much of what happens from age two up until adulthood is that pruning process, building cool pathways that define who you are. Are you a musician? Do you read books? Do your family spend time together? Do you have food insecurity? Are you food secure? Are you playing music? Let's form our brain that way versus a child with a less blessed development. So much so that your environment is in fact, is in fact impacting on that, uh, that pruning of your bonsai tree. So this is my invitation uh, to my own team here, and I'm blessed to have such great colleagues here at the University of Vermont, to say our, our role in modern medicine is to help young people develop the most beautiful brains they have by prescribing health improvement, wellness programs to them, and helping them avoid risks for emotional behavioral problems. And that way, I think child psychiatry is for everybody not just for children who are already struggling, and certainly we're totally devoted to them, but health promotion and illness prevention would be for every parent, for every kid, at every age. And that's where I hope my field goes. I hope someday in the future when you talk about child psychiatry, you'll say, well, that's the field that helped us develop healthy brains for everybody. I mean, it's one thing to try to get young people to understand the impact of their behaviors and decisions, but then how you get that information into the hands of parents like me. So at our center, the Vermont family-based approach, again, it's a system that I've, I've developed, 
we assess not only the child's emotional behavioral strength, because you can imagine a mom or dad would come in with concerns about their child's sadness or anxiety or inattention or naughty behavior. In many clinics around the country, they would focus on the child, and as you opine, they might just say, well, here's medicine. At our center, prior to coming in, mom and dad both fill out forms about their kids' behavior that are normed by gender, ethnicity, and age. Mom and dad then fill out a form about themselves, mom about mom, mom about dad, dad about dad, dad about mom. And if the kid's older than 13, kid fills them out about mom and dad. <laughs> I can imagine what those are like. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's actually really sweet. The kids often see their parents in the same way that their parents' partner sees them. When mom would report about dad, the kid often reports in a way that makes dad look just a lot like what mom said and vice versa. So what you see in this, these are all measures of the degree to which a person is sad or anxious, naughty, bad or quirky. And what you're seeing, if you see a little girl who's anxious and inattentive, you'll see a mom who's anxious and a dad who's inattentive. And we just say to mom and dad, look, your child has a highly heritable and environmentally influenced set of behaviors. They got their genes from somebody, you. You have similar traits, but no one's offered to help you. You might be struggling against the yoke of your own genetics. Hmm. Let us help you help your kid. So you don't necessarily say to mom and dad, let us help you help yourself, but we say, let us help you help your kid. And they do. And it's lovely. It's a, it's a great deal of fun. So at our center, we, we don't say treat, but we work with moms. We work with dads. And when they feel like they're in a good place, we then do parent training. Now, that to me is something I think every single person in the world who wants to have a kid should undergo parent training first. Uh, in fact, I've argued in a couple different states that you, ha you should teach it. You should finish a parent training class before you get your driver's license. Um, we teach a course at the University of Vermont called Family Wellness Coaching, How to Raise a Healthy Child Before You Have One. The most important thing we do in our lives is raising our kids, and yet we don't get trained in how to do it. So we offer that to all of our families here. So they leave with the confidence that they know how to raise a healthy kid, but they also leave with the understanding of how their kid's brain is developing and what stage of development, what's reasonable and what's not reasonable to expect of their kid. And more importantly, they understand just like how tall they are or hair color or eye color, that the traits of anxiety, sadness, and inattention are as genetic, if not more genetic, than many common traits. So they can relate to their child's journey by remembering their own struggles at similar ages, but not judge themselves harshly, but rather now understand for the first time why adolescence might have been difficult for them or why college might have been difficult for them. So it's called incentivized-based behavior change and give people wellness goals that they can achieve that change their brain, change their behavior, and change the arc of their potential. Wow, that's interesting. So how is it then that, um, you know, things like peer pressure and teens modeling their behavior of uh, the behavior of others then come into play here? Well, humans are, are highly success, highly suggestive. Um, peer related behaviors and peer pressures that come into play often uh, are helping a young person fill a vacuum of loneliness or feel a vacuum of lack of identity. It's a big reason why I 
took this same model and applied it to the college environment at UVM. Uh, our program called the UVM Wellness Environment. If people want to learn more about it, they can just Google UVM space we, W-E. Because nowhere is that more clear than when an 18-year-old brain, which is still in the midst of this construction, is sent off to college and often put in environments where there's not much incentive to engage in healthy brain-building behavior. <laughs> there's a lot of opportunities to engage in things that are destructive for the human brain. And I'm lucky enough to work at a university with a visionary president, President Sullivan, a great uh, really great provost Dave Rosowski, but uh, also Annie Stevens, vice provost of student affairs, that I pitched this experiment to them that I could take the same model that we use for young kids and grade school and high school kids, and we could send it to college. And uh, they were kind to me, and they said, sure, Jim, if you want to give that a shot. And so we built the, the UVM wellness environment, which is a neuroscience-inspired, big term, but means done with the understanding about how human brain develops in the years 17 to 21, 22, 23 college years. Incentivized based, meaning we'll pay you to do these things, behavioral change program. So all in one term, neuroscience inspired behavior change program. So the idea is in our environment, the UVM wellness environment, you move into our program, you agree to take a course called Healthy Brains, Healthy Bodies, Surviving and Thriving in Life. It's required. You sign a contract that says you will live in our residence halls, and if you had alcohol or drugs in the halls or paraphernalia associated with, with alcohol or drugs in the halls, you'd be removed. In addition, in this dormitory, you get yoga classes every day, you get mindfulness training every day. You get your own fitness trainer. You get fitness on demand. You get uh, Peloton bikes. You get your own dietitian and nutritionist to help you eat the way you want to eat. Wow. And you get involved in a mentoring program to help young children in our community and give back. Then I created an app that every time our students do one of those things, exercise, go to a nutrition event, go to a mentoring event, go to yoga, go to mindfulness, uh, they earn we coins, wellness coins, and that coin goes in their we bank, and then they can go to our we store and buy we stuff. So it's a cryptocurrency aimed at paying young people from age 17 to 23 to engage in positive brain-building behavior. Um, the idea can be simply understood by your listeners to saying you most of us have made New Year's resolutions, which we did not keep. And the reason we didn't keep them is no one paid us to do it. So the general idea of incentivized-based behavioral change is to help people move from an at-risk or negative health environment into a much healthier environment by incentivizing them. And you may or may not know, we started with 100 kids. This is our third year. We have 1,100 kids. Um, and the data are extraordinary in terms of health outcomes and uh, wow. GPA and, and things. And my prevailing point, getting back to your peer pressure thing, is that I've, I admire and believe in young people. And my sense was that young people, given the opportunity to make good decisions, would make good decisions. It would be our job to create environments 
peer environments where it's cool to meditate, do yoga, exercise, eat well, sleep well, give back to others through positive relations uh, instead of doing some of the other stuff that is more typical of the peer-related behaviors in college kids. And I can tell you this, uh, the interest around the nation for our program uh, is uh, meteoric, and if you go to our website, you'll see we've been covered in just about every major media outlet because this is just a very, very simple and easy to understand point. Our brains aren't done in college. In addition to teaching them the academic excellence that the University of Vermont certainly has because we are public ivy and we give great, great uh, educational opportunities to our students, we also should give them some other kind of education that allows them to build a healthy brain and take healthy habits with them from college to the rest of their lives. Wow. I'm actually like my jaw is on the floor here because the the numbers you just uh, said there, my my mind thinks about my college days and the sort of things that I got up to when I was in college. And, you know, I look back and I think I am a completely unrecognizable person to the person I was <laughs> during my college days. And, you know, you question yourself, like, what the hell was I thinking? Uh, but to hear that kids are doing this and actually getting involved in pro-social activities and encouraging each other and you guys targeting the, the reward centers, I guess, of the brain is a certainly different way of, of doing it. And um, I'm really impressed at, you know, how successful it has been. Yeah, well, it's inspiring. I mean, the students are finishing their finals now, and I, I go over to our residence halls, and it's just so inspirational. It buoys me to see these incredible young people on the journeys they're on. And I don't want to act like they don't go out and uh, engage in knucklehead behavior. The rules are you can't have that stuff in the residence halls. It doesn't mean you can't go out and engage in other forms of illegal behavior. And by that, I'm simply making a joke that go out and have a drink or you know smoke yeah. the dilly weed. You wouldn't be thrown out if you did that. You would just be removed if you did it in the dorm. And it's important to know that with 1,100 kids, we only removed 2% of the students. So even if you weren't fully committed to doing it when you got to college, you learn how to do it. And that's a very important message, that they can come back to a quiet, safe uh, environment, and they can celebrate building their brains. And they, and they speak in that language. So it, it's, it's really inspiring. And I'm also equally inspired that many, many universities around the country are, are asking us to help them develop you know, similar programs at their places. So I guess what this is telling me is that our societal structures, our education system, legal system, even our parenting hasn't evolved. Well, I think part of it is the, you know, the responsibility or the failure of child psychiatry, adult psychiatry, psychology, etc., because we were so focused on and it's appropriate, so I don't want to say this is a failure, but we're so focused on helping those people who are struggling mightily with psychiatric illness, which we must do and I continue to do, that we forgot that in the same way a cardiologist would never define herself by saying cardiology is only about treating people with heart disease in an intensive care unit who are about to die. Instead, a cardiologist would say, I'm going to develop heart-healthy diet plans, exercise plans, 
etc. Nowhere is that more true than developing brain-healthy exercise, brain-healthy diet plans, uh, because the brain runs all of health. So what we are now evolving to do is to say our science is for everybody, not just those who struggle, but if those are struggling, health promotion and illness prevention works. It is true that the neuroscience of relationships, the neuroscience of kinship, the neuroscience of communities can breed a shared journey and a shared vision towards wellness. And another thing that's happened in our culture is the diminution of the importance of a family, importance of our communities, importance of religious groups. And I think that, you know, my opinion, this isn't science, but my opinion is the that's where media and social pressures, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, uh, all of this stuff have diminished the intentional and aspirational contacts of our families, of our communities, of our religious groups, whatever they are. And I think that has hurt quite a bit as well. And so I do hope in a very small way that our work, we'd like to think of the Vermont Center for Children and Families as a think tank where the work can be applied at other places, but we hope that our work can lead to a realization of the importance of this aspirational idea that you can build healthy brains through engaging in health-promoting activities that these should be taught to parents and kids, and along the way we should revisit the idea that kindness and gratitude can go a long way towards developing healthy kids, healthy families, healthy communities. So how can we get these ideas into the schools, especially uh, Vermont schools? Well, um, there are some really beautiful examples. The Winooski school system has been very pro-forward in their own mindfulness program. South Burlington school systems has a mindfulness program of their own. These are bits and pieces. Our own work, this is so explosive and so new, um, we have talked to the superintendent of schools in Burlington about trying to roll out some of this stuff. But, you know, the bandwidth of any human being, of any team, uh, is limited. And so what we're trying to do right now is seed these ideas in the profession around the country and then have each state or each person or each, uh, each doc uh, start to take the responsibility for their community. We're just beginning, um, and we're highly motivated and optimistic that we're going to be able to make a change and there's no question that we should try to get it in schools. But what I should say, the thing I'm spending a lot of my passion on right now is a program run by a wonderful young psychiatrist, Sarah Guth, and a, and a great uh, obstetrician, Marge Meyer, um, on my team, where we're starting with uh, pregnant women in adversity. So we're doing all those same pillars of health with moms, uh, Medicaid moms, moms who might be addicted to uh, uh, oxycodone, for example. What if we bring yoga for pregnancy, mindfulness for pregnancy, nutrition for pregnancy, emotional behavioral support for pregnancy, and then take it even a step further to try to help their partners and their kids to develop wellness around young babies while they're still in the inter environment. So I want to dial it back all the way uh, to that time point. Wow, that's exciting. <laughs> um, so, Jim, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? 
Jim, uh, you're going to meet an incredible woman who's going to guide you for the rest of your life and make sure you know how lucky you are. Wow, you just melted my heart right there, Jim. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, so would you like to share how to my audience how they can learn more about you and uh, the organizations that you're involved in? Sure. So there's a couple different uh, ways you can search us on uh, Google and the Internet. One is called the Vermont Center for Children, Youth, and Families. So you come to our center, the Vermont Center for Children, Youth, and Families, and you'll see uh, links to all the papers we wrote, we write, all of the projects we have going on. Uh, and then the other end of it is you can go to the, and Google UVM, University uh, Vermont, W-E, we, so UVM, we, and you'll see, not only will you see all the stories about this college environment, but you'll see all the press coverage, but you also see videos of how college students are really celebrated. In fact, uh, one of the students said to me today, thank you for making it cool for me to be well. Mm. I love that. Wow. That's that's terrific. And, you know, I really um, want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing with me and my listeners the wealth of knowledge that you have in the neuroscience and genomics of brain development. You know, uh, like many others I know out there, you know, our goal is to, is to make sure that one day our children are uh, able to successfully navigate through the critical adolescent years and learn and practice behavioral techniques and organizational skills, impulse control, all of that stuff in situations that life is going to inevitably throw at them. And so That's with right. the right education effort, and I heard you say love, you know, the development hurdles our children's face uh, in life will equip them to deal with uh, these challenges and prepare them for a happy and successful future. And I'm so glad that people like yourselves are helping to make that possible. So I wish you all the very best, uh, you know, with your program and at the University of Vermont. And I'll certainly be keeping an eye open to see how things are progressing over there and hopefully be able to maybe even get you and uh, the South Burlington School District together because I've got a vested interest in how my daughter's future shapes out as well. Yeah, well, we, we all should. Thank you for your kindness and uh, uh, continued good luck, Tino. Thank you. And with that, we will wrap up the show. <laughs>